Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... What can we find out about harmful industry lobbying in Australia? And the short answer is not much. Calls for greater regulation and transparency when it comes to government lobbying. Also, how can these ancient food production systems inform us about sustainable food industries into the future? We're engaging with food scientists to get a better idea. Ancient Indigenous food practices could provide key knowledge for a sustainable food future. And later today... We saw that outright owners, to be moved into outright ownership sort of in your 50s approaching retirement, gave a great deal of financial satisfaction. So people obviously felt really good financially. We take a look. It's new research suggesting home ownership can impact personal well-being. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, a new research project from the University of Queensland is exploring ancient Indigenous food production systems to support a more sustainable food future. The project, called Testing the Dark Emu Hypothesis, combines Indigenous knowledge with scientific research across multiple disciplines, aiming to develop a new understanding of First Nations cultural practices. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with Associate Professor Michael Westaway, a bioarchaeologist from the University of Queensland, to hear more about the research and its significant takeaways. So we at the University of Queensland have started a project called Testing the Dark Emu Hypothesis. And the idea is, in Bruce Pascoe's book, he notes a whole heap of different observations from European explorers in the 19th century that we can test in an archaeological sense. Bruce talks about villages being in certain areas Sturt documents massive villages on his way up towards Channel Country in Central Australia. He talks about the sorts of plants that people are exploring and even cultivating. So if we apply the correct methods, we can start looking for those. What we're doing in this project is designing a research methodology, not unlike the sort of methodologies that are applied in Southwest Asia or in the Americas, where archaeobotanists sieve very carefully through ancient deposits to recover the seeds and get an idea of what plants people were cultivating. And they also work with plant geneticists. If there's any evidence of plants being translocated or going through any kind of selective process. So we are working closely with the Aboriginal Mythica people based out Windora and their country is a bit larger than Belgium and spreads out to the edge of the Simpson Desert and takes in the Diamantina River and all those amazing channels and the Cooper. In that area there are lots of historic accounts of village sites and we've been trying to relocate those village sites and using an instrument called a magnetometer starting to scan beneath the ground surface to find ancient fireplaces. A couple of years ago, we did an excavation. I mean, the preservation in Mythic country is so exceptional that you actually still see standing gunyans. So the gunyans are these little houses, basically. And what we did, we scanned out the front of one of these gunyans using the magnetometer and found all these anomalies, which we then excavated. And these are ancient fireplaces. And then the archaeobotanists have been sitting very carefully through the deposits and finding loads of seeds. Most times, archaeologists use sieves that have got about a mesh size of about 2.4 millimetres. The problem in Australia is most Aboriginal seeds 
are less than a millimetre. So everything is falling, nothing is being recovered. And so we've got this fine mesh-like material. We're recovering loads of these things, and now the task is to try to identify the species. The really other important aspect of this is understanding the science of the Mitzka people and other Aboriginal groups. What plants are they exploiting? And Jennifer Silcock is an ethnobotanist, and she has now identified some 750 different plants that Aboriginal people are using out in Channel Country for weapons, for tool use, but importantly also for food. And so we're getting this really rich record of, okay, well, this is the diversity of plants that are being used. And then we're finding loads of different seeds in the actual deposits of these things. So if we can identify them, match them against the seeds, we get a clear idea of what people are basically engaging with. Just for future sustainability, what do you think is the best way for the public to maybe utilise some of these techniques? One of the really inspiring things in Bruce Pascoe's book, I know he's copped a lot of flack, but he actually talks about let's use this ancient knowledge from traditional owners, from elders, from archaeologists, and think about how we apply that to the food future. The University of Queensland has an amazing food futures institute where it looks at drought-resistant crops and it looks at different species and look, how would they survive in these landscapes and how are they used for food or how could they be used in the future for basically food for cattle? Can we get drought-resistant plants that will be more suitable for the grasses for cattle? So there is some work starting off. The Jaja Warung in central Victoria, one of our co-authors is the CEO, Rodney Carter. He's partnering with the Trobe University botanist and they're looking at kangaroo grass as a possible future fodder for cattle because it's from this country, it's evolved and adapted to this country, it's used to these drought conditions, it's much more sustainable than introduced to the exotic grasses. So at the moment there's a lot of work that goes into these boutique food industries around kakadu palm and there's some boutique breads and things like that but how can these ancient food production systems inform us about sustainable food industries into the future? We're engaging with food scientists to get a better idea and we're also working under this Nagoya protocol which basically gives the intellectual property right to those Aboriginal groups. So they're the ones that actually retain the IP over this knowledge and hopefully it can help boost our Aboriginal economies across the country. It's a big picture way of thinking. We've got a long way to go unless we get more funding but at the moment we're just trying to work out what was the nature of these food production systems and maybe we can call them agriculture but I don't think that's the really important thing. I think the really important thing is to work out the diversity of food production systems across the country. I mean I'm driving up to Birdsville at the moment and I can see wheat monoculture everywhere and it's a pretty desolate looking landscape but in the past there would have been a mosaic of different vegetation patterns There would have been burning management of that landscape to make it more economically productive and you think about this environment and you think of an environment say Cape York on the east side where you've got closed rainforest how diverse the economy must have been in that environment compared to here and then you apply that across the whole continent I mean there are so many diverse environments so many diverse Aboriginal groups doing different things so rather than just labelling it all hunter-gatherers or foragers maybe agriculturalists I think trying to understand what these production systems were talk to Aboriginal people and say well what do you reckon we should call it I think that's a very good approach That was UQ Associate Professor Michael Westaway ending that report A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. Advocates and academics are calling for greater regulation and transparency when it comes to lobbying. Current public lobbyist registers reveal little information as to who's lobbying who and how often, leaving experts concerned about undue influence and the risk of misconduct and corruption. 
Public health researchers are among those concerned, with worries the influence of big industries like tobacco, alcohol and gambling could cause government to prioritise business interests over health and human rights. Dr Jennifer Lacey Nichols is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne and as part of her research has been analysing information from all of the lobbyist registers in Australia. Um, And as part of that, I'm trying to get a better understanding of how harmful industries, in this case alcohol, gambling, tobacco and ultra-processed foods, use different political activities to influence governments and sometimes try to block public health policies that would be really good for health but perhaps very threatening for profits. This is, I guess, one piece of that bigger project. And I was trying to figure out, I guess, what can we find out about harmful industry lobbying in Australia? And the short answer is not much. They're not giving enough detail. And also, I guess, the way that they're designed is just, it's incredibly time-consuming for myself as a researcher who's dedicating lots of time to do this for the average, you know, for, you know, someone in the public, it would be even harder to probably try to figure this out and navigate them. Not everyone or not every lobbying group or not every lobbyist has fair access to government. Why Why is this? Is it just in terms of scale? Oh, I mean, I guess, I guess there's sort of two parts to that. The first is that, so I was looking at the lobbyist registers and most of the lobbyists, many of the lobbyists in Australia were never even going to be part of the registers because they only apply to a particular group of lobbyists. So the technical term is third-party lobbyists, but they're the ones that work for professional lobbying companies. Um, So all the ones that are directly employed by a company. So if I work for Coca-Cola, if I work for Philip Morris or CUB or something like that, I'm not in the register. Um, So any of that outsized influence, we're never going to get any information about anyways. It's one of the many major loopholes, I guess, in these. Um, That glaring omission number one, I suppose glaring omission number two is that with the exception of Queensland, there's no record of any of the meetings. So, you know, we've got, you know, I think of it kind of like a phone book. We've got a phone book of who's, you know, lobbying and who's registered, but we don't actually know what they're doing. (laughs) So, you know, you find out about what they're doing when journalists or you do investigative reporting or something gets leaked to the media, which is not really how we should find out about lobbying. It should just be in the public domain. Mm, so even if it was, I guess, the meeting was, was recorded, there's no notes or anything of, you know, that they wanted to talk about alcohol policy or gambling? The little bits that we get in terms of information about meetings, it's only occurring at the state level, not at the federal level, sorry. Um, New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT, they all have what are called ministerial diaries. And so it's a record of who ministers we're meeting with. Um, and they technically, I guess they provide a thing about purpose. But a lot of that is, you know, introduction or commercial confidence, mm. um, which doesn't really reveal very much. Um, and we've got nothing like that at the federal level. Right. And so what what are the kinds of consequences that, that we might be seeing because of this lack of transparency? I guess there's lots of different things. One, I think, is that the sense is that it contributes to a general distrust that if we're having these meetings and they're done in secret, then, you know, dodgy things are going to be going on. And that's that's probably not the case a lot of the time. Obviously, meeting with government and making your views heard is a completely legitimate activity. But if it happens in secret, it... I guess it tends to foster sort of a, some mistrust. So that's 
not a benefit to anyone who's legitimately lobbying and legitimately meeting with people. So that's part one. And I guess the other part is that, you know, when we do have alcohol organizations or gambling or tobacco or, you know, fossil fuels or whatever it is whose interests might run counter to the public's, um, you know, they have they have access, they donate millions of dollars into the political parties. And, you know, research has shown that access buys you know, like that money buys access and that access can often translate into influence. I guess I'd like to know if that's happening. So we have a lobbying code of conduct. We've we've got that already. We need to have much better oversight. You know, if we have the model of having that sort of independent body, we likewise need, you know, something akin to that for the lobbyist registers, sorry, so that they're enforced, so that there's compliance. When you look internationally, one of the big things that people who research this and work in this space always say is that it's great if you've got, you know, the laws and the regulations and all of that on paper. That's an important first step. But until you have the oversight, until you have the enforcement mechanisms, until you have, like, actual fines and penalties that are imposed, you don't have any teeth. And without teeth, nothing's going to change. University of Melbourne Research Fellow Dr Jennifer Lacey-Nichols there, closing that report. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Bellingen on 2 B FM, to our listeners in Tassie on Edge Radio, and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome. Western Australia. Owning a home is something most Australians dream about, but new research suggests it could also impact your overall well-being. Curtin University researchers examined the impact of home ownership on subjective well-being and how it varies based on location, age and income. The wise contributor from RTRFM, Fiona Bartholomeus, spoke to Ryan Beardy, PhD candidate at Curtin University and co-author of the study, to learn more about subjective well-being. Subjective well-being is how well you feel about something, so it's your own personal perception. So to measure this, we looked at four domains. And so we looked at life satisfaction, financial satisfaction, satisfaction with someone's home and satisfaction with their neighbourhood. So it's how, how the respondents to the survey felt about these domains. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about your survey. You mentioned there were four main areas that you focused on. What kinds of questions and information were you after? So we used the HILDA survey, which is the Household Income Labor Dynamics Australia survey. And what this survey does, it's a longitudinal survey and it's a, it's a fantastic asset for all researchers. It's been running since 2001 and it follows about 17,000 people in about 8,500 households and it follows these people each year with the same and it's a comprehensive set of survey questions that they get asked the same people get asked the same questions each year so you're able to track individuals as certain circumstances change in their life um, how this affects their well-being or their subjective well-being in different domains it's quite interesting because you wouldn't think there would be much of a, a relationship between home ownership and subjective well-being but obviously there is a lot of information there to support that Definitely. And so what we did is we looked at how home ownership relative to renting, 
And I think home ownership, I mean, it's certainly in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It, it's, you know, it's a huge financial asset. In fact, it's Australia's biggest financial asset. Home ownership is, is just a cornerstone of social and financial well-being for everybody. And home ownership implies a greater level of economic capital, but this isn't simply enough to make people happy, is it? No, no, look, it varies, obviously, a lot. So when we look at home ownership, we've got, obviously, mortgagors and outright owners. And so what we were looking at is how different does a mortgagor feel as compared to a renter and how different does an outright owner feel compared to a renter. And once we started to break down those results into home ownership, we could see that there's a, while outright ownership provides people with a great deal more financial satisfaction and life satisfaction, whereas mortgaging only had a slightly greater satisfaction in those domains than renting. Um, But when we looked at things like um, neighbourhood satisfaction and satisfaction with someone's home, Um, mortgagors and outright owners have very similar levels of high satisfaction. Was there anything from your findings that surprised you and the team when you were researching this topic? Yeah, I suppose it was. A lot of it is very, it's quite intuitive anyway, but it's when you have the data and the modelling results to to demonstrate what's, you know, the magnitude of how much more satisfied people feel. So things like we saw that outright owners, when they move, to be moved into outright ownership, sort of in your 50s approaching retirement gave a great deal of financial satisfaction. So people obviously felt really good financially about moving into outright ownership before retirement. But what we also found then, that that satisfaction of being an outright owner once you're into retirement dropped quite dramatically. And so you start to look and say, okay, is that as a result of people who maybe haven't had a lot of time to build up superannuation so they've relied on the, the home to be a major store of wealth for them. But once they move into retirement, they're sort of the asset rich but cash poor. So the financial satisfaction tailed off. Now, you mentioned a little bit about age there, but how did the results of your findings change depending on variables such as age and location and gender? Okay, so gender didn't play into it incredibly. There is some research which shows that in situations like marital breakdown, there is definitely different levels of satisfaction with your home ownership status, but generally not by gender. By age, we found that outright owners are considerably more financially satisfied with their life, but like I said, that that changes with the age. So peaking at around 50, 55 for outright owners for your financial satisfaction. That was University of Western Australia PhD candidate Grace Blackburn there, ending the story from ITRFM's Fiona Bartholomeus. Have you checked out The Wire? It's your national current affairs program. The Wire, taking an independent look at what's happening in Australia and around the world. Fresh voices, new points of view, current affairs with a difference. Don't miss The Wire, daily on community and Indigenous radio across Australia. Today, the 34th Australian National Prayer Breakfast was hosted at Parliament House. Organised by the Parliamentary Christian Fellowship, the event brought ministers, senators, organisations and civic leaders together to pray for the well-being of the nation. 
The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke to Hope FM journalist Jefferson Shaw about the purpose of the event. Today, uh, around 500 people gathered for the 34th National Prayer Breakfast. It's attended by a lot of Christians, including MPs of faith, those associated with the Christian organisations. That's your World Visions, the Australian Christian Lobby, Freedom for Faith, Anglicare. But it's also a ticketed event, so anyone can essentially come along. Were there any specific topics discussed at the event? And if so, which ones? Uh, this year's theme was on forgiveness. So the keynote address was by Danny and Layla Abdallah. Now, to give you some context on that, over three years ago, three of their children, Sienna, Angelina, and Anthony Abdallah, and their cousin, Veronique Saker, uh, were killed in Oatlands in Sydney's northwest. So a drunk and drug driver mounted the curb, and it ran into the kids that had just gone down the road to get ice cream. So it's a story that shocked Sydney, but not only that, people were amazed because the parents publicly forgave the driver that killed their kids. So today, during the speech, Danny recalled the visit to prison where he visited the driver, Samuel Davidson, just in August. So Samuel Davidson, he's spending a maximum of 15 years in prison. And so during the visit, Davidson told Danny that he'd converted to Christianity. Could you please tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the politicians who attended the prayer breakfast? So among the MPs there today, uh, we had Communications Minister Michelle Rowland. She was representing the Prime Minister, the House Speaker Milton Dick, the Opposition Leader Peter Dutton, New South Wales Senator Deborah O'Neill, as well as the co-conveners of the Parliamentary Christian Fellowship. Uh, so that includes MPs such as David Smith and Senator Matt O'Sullivan. And they all actually spoke on the impact of prayer, of faith and love. And among those as well, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison also attended, although he didn't formally take part in the event. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with this event, why is this National Prayer Breakfast uh, event relevant at Parliament House? Look, I think the politicians there who, who spoke actually had a lot to say on its relevance. Uh, they were talking about how the breakfast shows that faith plays an integral part in our multi-faith, multicultural society. I think senior MP Michelle Rowland said it best when she said prayer amongst faith people are, is the com common denominator. Uh, so Prayer, she said, was unifying in this place and outside because it speaks one language, love. That was a direct quote there. Uh, she says, prayer is what unites us, no matter the denomination or the faith group that we come from. And I think it's so important that we have events like this because it's relevant in our community, relevant with the world, as polarized as it is. I see Australia tittering on the edge of going down the path of the US and its stark party lines. But being able to have events like this, where Christians are able to come to a political event and basically talk on and love and forgiveness and engage with the world as it is and not or not by itself, not in um, the corners of society where fringe groups develop. We can have this out in the open, out in front of parliament. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for, for faith communities to gather. With 43% of Australians identifying themselves as Christians, according to the 2021 uh, census, what's the message this event is giving to the community? Well, Christianity is essentially based on the foundation that Jesus forgives 
everyone that's done wrong. And that's because Christians believe that no one is without sin. So the message certainly from Danny and Layla Abdallah today was for those to get that, that were gathered to reflect on who they need to forgive and that those who they need to ask forgiveness from. And particularly to the wider Christian population, I think the important takeaway was to live by faith, particularly when it comes to parliament and political issues. Christians, I think, can get caught up with the hot topic issues. I think what this event shows that the key tenets for Christians are forgiveness and grace. That was Hope FM's Jefferson Shaw. Ending that story, by the way, is Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbul and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire. (laughs) 